Hello and welcome to the Almost Enlightened Podcast, a show about whatever I want. I'm your host, Alex Morin, and this episode might possibly be my most challenging to date. I say that because it was an extremely challenging episode for me to create. It required many more days of research than I'd planned, which is why I'm a week behind in launching it. Now, this week's subject matter is a little off the beaten path, and I think you're going to really appreciate the ideas, the thoughts, and the possibilities inherent in this particular creation. I'm going to draw on some fascinating perspectives and cover some pretty cool concepts that I think you're going to dig. Now, that's the preface to this episode. So I'll ask that you open your minds and prepare for some thought-provoking ideas. Are you ready? Of course you are. If I had to characterize my own memory, I'd say it's pretty good. It's certainly not perfect, but it's good. One of my brothers, on the other hand, has an unbelievable memory. He'll recall things that astound me, right down to the most minute detail and from decades ago. It never ceases to amaze me. So I've been thinking for the past few weeks about the brain, about memory, about recall, and also about thought and imagination. Over the past few months, I've spent a fair amount of time researching the heart, and now I'd like to turn my attention to the brain, particularly as it relates to memory and the mind. The prevailing science tells us that memories are stored in various regions of the brain. To be more specific, episodic memory, things that happen in the past, and semantic memory, general facts and information, are said to be stored in the hippocampus, the neocortex, and the amygdala, while implicit memories, like motor memories, i.e. how we move parts of our bodies, are said to be stored in the basal ganglia and the cerebellum. Finally, short-term memories are most often associated with the prefrontal cortex. Now, many interesting studies have been conducted that seem to support these findings. Yet other experiments demonstrate a plasticity, if you will, when it comes to memories being associated with these parts of the brain. For example, in a famous study conducted by Carl Lashley, in which mice were trained to find their way through a maze, which requires the use of memory, Lesions were made in the areas of the brain associated with this type of memory, the hypothesis being that the mice would no longer be able to make their way through the maze. But guess what? That didn't happen. The mice continued to be able to find their way through the maze in spite of the removal of the part of the brain that was presumed to hold the memory of the journey. Now, this led to the hypothesis that if a certain area of the brain that holds specific memory is damaged or removed, then the brain may shift that job to another part of itself. But what if that's not exactly what's happening? In physics, the term field is used to describe a physical quantity by a number or other variable that has a value for each point in space and time. Now that may sound terribly confusing, but I'm gonna make it super simple for you. Consider a gravitational field as an example of a field. A gravitational field is simply a massive body that extends into the space around itself. For example, the Earth has a gravitational field that extends around itself. 
and that field produces a force on another massive body. The moon would be a great example of that other massive body upon which the field exerts a force. So we don't see the gravitational field, but it exists, and we all know it exists. In fact, there are tons of fields that exist that we never see. Examples include temperature fields, electromagnetic fields, wind velocity fields, UV fields, microwave fields, and so on. In fact, every particle has its own field. Even our hearts produce an electromagnetic field around our bodies that can be measured by instruments. According to the National Library of Medicine, the heart produces a significant electromagnetic field and extends outside the body. Huh, you don't say. In short, we are surrounded by fields, some of which are created by ourselves. Here's why I mention fields, and here's where it gets really interesting. Have you ever heard of the morphic field theory, also known as morphic resonance? Well, neither had I until I stumbled upon an interview between Drs. Deepak Chopra and Rupert Sheldrake. Chopra was fascinated by Sheldrake's life work conducted at Cambridge and Harvard universities on the theory that self-organizing systems inherit a memory from previous similar systems that may be part of a field that Sheldrake calls the morphic field. Now, in case you're wondering, our nervous systems provide a wonderful example of a self-organizing system. Sheldrake developed this theory when he was studying plants and plant reproduction at Cambridge University. And over the past few weeks, I've spent a fair amount of time researching Sheldrake's work and appreciating the building blocks of his theory. In much the same way that an electromagnetic field that's produced by our hearts surrounds ourselves, the morphic field is another field that might occupy the time and space around us. Imagine it as a field of probability in which the probabilities are linked to habit. The morphic field would wrap around any organism, including an oak tree or even an acorn from an oak tree, and this would account for the reason that an acorn always produces an oak tree and never a maple tree. Now, I'm really intrigued by this idea because I have a feeling that if the morphic field exists, that it's tied to the subconscious in some way, a place where habits rule supreme. There's so little we know about the subconscious, but one area of complete agreement is that the subconscious is a place in which our habits and paradigms reside. Without question, our genes and epigenetics play a significant role in building who we are. However, the creation of proteins through our genes doesn't adequately account for things like shape, form, or behavior. So this idea of morphic resonance complements what we already know about genetics and may also have implications that could lead to a radical redefinition of memory storage, as in the memories that modern science insists are stored in the brain. But what if they're not actually stored in the brain at all? Remember those mice? And what if they're part of a field that our minds access on command? Hey, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to ask some questions here. Let's take a look at an organism that seems to have a memory, but doesn't have a brain at all. Physerum polycephalum, 
also known as a slime mold, is a single-cell organism made up of multiple nuclei that defies what we think we know about biology. Because this single-cell organism grows without ever having to divide. It has the ability to sense its environment by sensing pressure, light, and chemicals, and can even create complex structures and move locations. But here's where it gets truly wild. This organism appears to learn, to remember, and even to solve complex problems, all without the use of a brain and neurons, which puts an interesting spin on defining intelligent life, something that's normally defined as having self-awareness and ability to use tools and language. Now, it would take me the better part of half an hour to really get into all the fascinating things you'd need to know about this slime mold. But the reason I bring it up today is because without a brain and without any electrical impulses, it acts rather intelligently. For example, it's been able to solve mazes that were previously only solvable by mice, and it's been able to solve some rather challenging mathematical problems in relation to pathfinding. In one widely cited experiment, Japanese scientists recreated a map of metropolitan Tokyo and put a food source, they used oatmeal, at different locations on the map to represent different locations in Tokyo. The slime mold was able to seek and find the food sources, again correlated to real locations in Tokyo, and map out the most efficient routes to each point. And guess what? The routes it mapped out were essentially a near-identical copy of the Tokyo subway system, and all done in 26 hours. Wow! But what's even more fascinating is that this organism seems to have a memory as well. I'll point out again, without a brain. As evidenced by another really interesting experiment in which scientists changed the environment of the mold every 60 minutes. In that experiment, scientists changed the condition to make it extremely cold at the 60-minute mark and then extremely dry at the next 60-minute mark. They continued to do this for some time, and then they abruptly stopped changing the conditions. What happened next was that when they stopped changing these conditions, the slime still anticipated the change and prepared itself for a new set of conditions at the 60-minute mark. Now that is interesting, isn't it? So the question is, where is the memory coming from? And where is the apparent intelligence coming from? Is it so wacky an idea to theorize that memories are not stored in our brains? Is it so wacky to wonder if the subconscious is perhaps a morphic field or part of a morphic field? I don't know, but let's keep going. I tell you the story of the slime mold for two reasons. Number one, because it demonstrates an alternative opinion when it comes to memory. If memory isn't stored in a brain of any sort when it comes to the slime mold we were just discussing, then we must ask ourselves, where is that memory residing? And number two, as much as our slime mold is behaving in a seemingly intelligent manner, we humans take the cake when it comes to our abilities. 
In previous episodes, I've marveled at the gifts we possess as humans, those gifts being the cognitive faculties, the imagination, reason, judgment, perception, memory, and will being just a few of them, that allow us to do what no other creature appears to be capable of doing. Essentially, these faculties allow us to create at will. I know of no other creature on the planet that builds casinos, race cars, spaceships, or can create pretty much whatever it imagines. My belief is that in some way, shape, or form, our progress as a human species is tied to our collective past as well as our creativity and imagination. And you may be thinking at this point, yeah, no kidding, Einstein. However, I'm going to take it a step further. Did you know that according to something known as the Flynn effect, the average IQ, which are the results of standardized tests made to measure levels of intelligence, has risen by an average of three IQ points per decade? According to BBC Future, even the average person today would have been considered a genius compared to someone born in 1919. My growing belief, or perhaps hypothesis, is that there is a sort of collective unconscious at play here that allows us to build upon previous knowledge acquired by humanity. More specifically, I wonder if the knowledge we gain as a human race is somehow transferred through generations in a way that might not be fully accounted for by genetics, and which accounts for this progressive rise in IQ, along with the progressive growth and expansion of our species' knowledge and wisdom. Genetics alone doesn't account for a global rise in IQ, but tapping into our species' consciousness would do that quite beautifully. Hey, have you ever noticed that as soon as a new style of music comes out, that it's often replicated by other musicians almost immediately? Or that when a significant scientific breakthrough occurs, that there are normally multiple teams around the world disconnected working on the same subject matter? I wonder if perhaps there's another force at play, or a combination of forces working in tandem, which seems much more plausible to me. Sheldrake's morphic resonance theory provides an elegant solution to the possibility of a collective unconscious in the sense that the theory supposes a collective memory that's somehow tied to past and future generations of the same species. In other words, we get to benefit from the past knowledge of our ancestors, potentially through some kind of a field. Remember, fields are everywhere, and we certainly haven't discovered all of them. So let's pursue that idea for just a moment. In an experiment conducted at the University of Glasgow, a photon, which is the quantum of light, was split and sent in two different directions. But before I tell you what happened to that split particle, I should tell you that a Nobel-winning physicist by the name of Erwin Schrödinger discovered the concept of quantum entanglement sometime in the 1920s, which, according to AstroGeek's website, simply means entangled particles that stay connected in some sense so that the actions performed on one of the particles affects the other no matter the distance between two particles. The important part there is that when you affect one part of the particle, no matter how far away it is from the other part, the other one is affected. Please remember that. Now, let's get back to that split photon experiment. 
When the split photon was sent off in two different directions, the experimenters were able to manipulate one of the split photons. And can you guess what happened to the other split photon that went off in the opposite direction? Yes, you are correct. It exhibited the same phase transition as the manipulated photon. In plain English, it did the exact same thing as the other photon, even though it wasn't manipulated and was separated by a great distance. How cool is that? And how do we think that happened? Is it possible that the manipulation was perceived, felt, or picked up by the other photon through a field of some sort? Schrodinger and Einstein couldn't quite explain it, and Einstein even called the phenomenon spooky action at a distance. And I am totally not making this up, my friends. It certainly makes me wonder. And if that were the case, the case being that this split photon is entangled with its counterpart, why couldn't it be possible that we are entangled with all matter? After all, scientists assure us that the universe began with the Big Bang. Doesn't this mean that we are all coming from the same matter? That we were split in much the same way that the scientists at the University of Glasgow split the photon? So is it humanly possible that we are connected to everything? Is it humanly possible that the connection is made through a morphic field? in which memory and knowledge exists. Wouldn't that be wild? Now let's begin pulling apart this crazy theory I've been talking about. Quantum mechanics, the behavior of matter at really small scales, is an isolated system, right? I mean, it couldn't possibly extend to bigger systems like the human body, the planet, or the solar system, right? But hang on, isn't everything in the universe made up of atoms, which are subject to the laws of quantum mechanics? So how do we compute that? Well, the answer is, we don't. The prevailing scientific model is based on a belief that nature is mechanical, or shall we say, machine-like. And this, my friends, is one of the dilemmas we're facing in science these days. Science is clinging precariously, in my opinion, to a mechanistic viewpoint that isolates systems, like the brain, and doesn't always consider a more unified viewpoint that seeks to see the system as part of a much larger and potentially infinite entity. If you ask most scientists, they'll tell you that the mind is located in your head and that your consciousness is a result of the activity in your brain. Heck, you, the listener, probably think that too because it's a dogmatic belief. And I'm not saying it's not, that is, that the mind isn't located in the head. I'm just saying that it might not be. There is no conclusive evidence to support the theory that even our memories are stored in the brain. Beyond the electrical impulses and the connections between neurons, very little is known about actual memory and where it's stored. Hey, we can follow the electrical signals, but we can't decode those signals and know definitively that a memory is stored in one particular location, because as we discussed at the beginning of this episode, 
when you remove parts of the brain associated with certain memories, as was done with the mice, there are instances where those memories seem to shift to other parts of the brain. Does that mean that's where they're stored? Or does that mean that something else is happening? Well, nobody knows. Some scientists are theorizing that the brain is more of a receiver than it is the end-all be-all when it comes to our capabilities. To me, this is a very exciting line of thinking that may one day lead to some fascinating discoveries of what we believe ourselves to be and what our minds truly are. The guy that you're listening to today, me, Alex Morin, is not a doctor, not a biologist, or a neurologist. There are millions of people that know a heck of a lot more than I do when it comes to the brain. Hey, and maybe everything else for that matter. But I am qualified to do my own research, to follow my own intuition, and to make my own hypotheses. I'm a philosopher who's curious about the universe, and I'm going to start asking some heavy questions that scientists haven't been able to satisfactorily answer for me. This is why when I do an episode on the heart and I tell you how I feel, I'm unashamed to say it the way I feel it. I demand answers, and I know they're out there. I'm qualified to provide my own answers and will always tell you to follow your heart and look for your own answers. So don't trust me. Trust yourselves. In the meantime, I'm attempting to look at the universe through multiple perspectives. Do I believe in the scientific process? Heck yes. But I think it's time to begin really examining the dogmas upon which our worldview is based. So much of what I once believed to be true is withering beneath my feet as we gain the courage to ask more questions. And the answers to those questions may not necessarily come from where you think they ought to. Perhaps the answers to our questions do indeed reside inside the mind. And we may one day discover that our mind isn't at all what we once believed it to be. Because what I'm discovering is that the mind is infinitely more powerful than we've ever believed it to be. And I'm not 100% convinced that it's even located in our heads. Perhaps that makes me a heretic. But this heretic is loving life and appreciating what I'm discovering on a daily basis. I don't know what next week's episode will be about yet, but I'll continue to ask questions and explore the things that make me wonder. I'll attempt to use the mind, notice I didn't say my mind, and delve into subject matter that's worthy of consideration. I love doing what I do, and I'm awfully grateful that you respect the space I've created without judgment in which I can explore and even do that with an open mind. Thank you for your support, and please know that I appreciate you. Mm -hmm.